I, I love and I embrace totally this concept of supply ecosystem. By the way, I we, we don't refer break it, we don't refer to supply chain anymore, we should refer to supply because I, I don't think the chain is, is valid anymore. To me, the chain is is kind of referring to words where things were quite linear and sequential and, and somehow predictable, which is absolutely not the case anymore. And it also refers to words where mostly things were in control internally, where you had most of your decisions and controls and stakeholders. Of course, with this concept of extended supply chain, hooking up upstream with the suppliers and downstream with the customers. But that, that again, is something of the past. Um, you know, if, if we're looking at how supply operates in today's world, it's anything but linear and sequential. Uh, so, you know, all the links are kind of scattered everywhere and the connections between the links keep changing all the time, which to me is much more closer to this concept of ecosystem. You're listening to Transform Talks, the podcast about global supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, a fast-growing network of over 130,000 supply chain and manufacturing executives worldwide. Now on this show, I'm going to be interviewing and having conversations with some of the biggest names in supply chain and business, where we're going to be discussing topics around digitization, transformation, leadership, technology, business models, diversity, sustainability, and much, much more. Welcome back to Transform Talks. I'm really excited to say that I'm joined by a very special guest this week. And for those of you that don't know, every year, a list is compiled of the top 28 supply chain executives in Europe. Supply chain leaders are ranked on financial results and on personal responsibility and visibility. And to be named in the top 28 is just one of the most prestigious accolades that a supply chain executive could wish for. But not only has this week's guest been named several times on that list, but as of 2022, he was given the top spot. In part, this is due to his remarkable ability to scale up product supply and improve performance during the pandemic. It is for this reason that I'm very eager to introduce this week's guest, Sami Nafak. Sami is the Chief Supply Officer at Reckitt, one of the leading hygiene, health, and nutrition companies in the world. Sami oversees Reckitt's end-to-end supply chain operations, as well as the advancement of the company's quality and health and safety functions. During his 25-year career, Sammy has worked for some of the world's largest fast-moving consumer goods companies, such as Unilever, Danone, and Estee Lauder. Sammy's wealth of international leadership experience means that he is now considered one of the most influential figures in the supply chain space. And during this week's episode, Sammy and I discuss how his upbringing influenced his career choices and how he was able to help Reckitt scale its product supply in the midst of a pandemic. Sammy and I also touch on the idea that supply chain leaders need to start viewing the supply chain more as one supply ecosystem. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Sammy. Welcome to Transform Talks. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Maria, and uh, good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Before we discuss your career and your approach to supply chain, I want to take you all the way back, back to the beginning, right? And I know you come from a multicultural background, kind of like I do, and that you spent your childhood, like me, moving from different places, place to place, which must have been a very big part of shaping who you are, right? So with that all being said, um, what do you think has been the biggest influence in the way that you approach your career and life? It's, uh, it's a very good and a very difficult question, um, exactly because as you were saying, right, I, I come from a multicultural background. My, my father was Syrian and his family or my family, that side of the family is Syrian, the other side is French. We've been moving a lot. And I think, you know, who I am and who we are and how we see life is actually uh, 
built on a multitude of experiences, encounters, uh, facts, most of them unconscious. Um, so it's very difficult for me to, uh, to answer your question, but you single something out. Um, also, I think that, you know, how we see life and how we behave, uh, our sense of priorities is changing over the course of life. So I, I think that my, my, my view on life today is very different from what it used to be. Um, and again, that evolution is unconscious. So I, all that to say that I have a hard time answering your question. Now, if I had to single out someone uh, who's had a huge influence on, on my life, on my career, on who I am, and on how I look at things, I would certainly uh, call out my, uh, my wife, Claudine. Um, we're, we're married together for more than 20 years. She's, uh, she's always been alongside me. She's always been supportive, but she's also been very open in giving reflections and feedback, which I found um, extremely useful. So that would be the one if I had to choose one. We're talking about someone with good leadership skills, because a good leader is someone that is also, you know, gives good feedback in tough times, right? Uh, so what do you think makes a good leader? I think exactly that, right? I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, being empathic and, and, and being close to the people, uh, not having a, you know, a single-minded view, uh, whilst being clear on direction. And being fair, and, and fairness in leadership is not always to uh, you know to support and help people. It's also to give feedback, always in a constructive way, always in a respectful way, but in a in a you know in an objective and honest way. Um, and that's probably one of the toughest part of leadership. It's always good to tell people what someone wants to hear. It's much more difficult to give feedback in a in a positive, constructive, but objective and honest way. Yeah, I, you know, I come across quite a number of leaders who, uh, well, who are tough at giving praise as well. They're, they find that difficult, but they find it even more difficult to give bad news, to give negative, uh, constructive criticism, right? They only know how to do it uh, in one way. So, no, I agree with you. Um, I want to move to the pandemic now because you have, uh, from what I was reading and from, you know, the, the work that my team was doing before the podcast, you moved jobs, didn't you, during the pandemic? So that that's that's a, a an interesting thing, an interesting time to do that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So I, I did indeed move jobs. So I started Reckit in uh, in July 2020. So it was in the midst of the pandemic, three three months in. Um, now there is a bit of disclaimer with this, which is Reckit wasn't completely news to me, right? I I, I used to work there long time ago, but there was still some reminiscence. I mean, it was. You know, I, I had some, uh, I had a few clear view or, and, and I, I knew a few people still in the business. So that made it a bit easier. Now, back to your question, moving during the, the, um, the fire of the pandemic was actually quite easy. Uh, first, because the whole logistics was easy, right? Everybody was at home. And second, because everybody was on, uh, everybody was on adrenaline trying to manage the situation. And that was the case when I was at Ala for my last three months with Ala, and that was the case from the first day I was at Reckitt. But it was about, it was all about taking actions, understanding what's going on, and reacting to the latest news, etc. So everybody was on deck, everybody was uh, was supercharged. So that period of the pandemic was actually, interestingly enough, quite easy from a change perspective. Right? It wasn't easy to deal with, but the fact of changing from Ala to, to Reckitt was pretty smooth. It became much harder afterwards. Right. It became much harder, I would say, in um, in the second half of 2021, where the, the fire of the pandemic was uh, was off, but then came all the aftermath. 
and came the realization that things were there to stay and that we were going from one disruption to another disruption and that we're, we're, we had to navigate through that whilst we had to transform the business, some of it because of COVID and the uh, consequences of COVID and some of it because of internal situation that we had. And during that, at the time, I hadn't met most of the team and I hadn't seen most of the locations. That was pretty tough. Wait, but you're coming into somewhere where you haven't seen it. I mean, a lot of people were dealing with crisis and adapting because they knew what was on the ground, but you hadn't done that. You arrived to somewhere and uh, quite literally blind to some degree, well, not literally, you know, figuratively blind uh, in some places. So do you think that that was a positive, not knowing, not having seen the uh, uh, your people in their locations at the time? And, you know, did it give you more agility, more adaptability? No, I wouldn't see it as a positive. I, I, it was manageable, and we, we did manage it. But uh, look, I, I think one learning for me, one clear learning of the pandemic and the whole uh, work from home stuff was there is a lot you can do through a screen, and there is probably much more that we can do remotely than what we believed before crisis. But there is nothing like face-to-face. There is nothing to build a relationship like you know being a direct contact in enough work, and there is nothing like being on the field and being on the shop floor. Uh, because the the number of inputs, insights, feelings that you get is immensely richer than through uh, through a screen. So, to get to your point, we we managed it and we did it. But I'm immensely relieved now that we can connect back to the uh, to the team face to face and 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 see things on the on the floor. Because, you know, to 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 your point, there's been a number of cases where my perception of things when I met the people and when I saw things in situ was vastly different from the perception I had through screen. Do you think that there's a perception that many leaders don't get close enough to the shop floor, to the boots on the ground, to be able to make decisions in today's complex world? There certainly is sometimes a perception and there certainly is sometimes that feedback that senior leaders are seen as disconnected from the reality of the ground and from the day-to-day life of the people. Look, it, it's and as you're saying, right? Uh, it's difficult to make some general statements, and I think every every company, every leader is is different and sees things differently and and has different priorities. I think there is a combination of truth and a combination of you know you can't expect people to be at any point of time everywhere with everybody. So there is also a, a bit of uh, over expectation on how much bandwidth senior leaders have to be aware and on the field at any point of time. Um, that would be my, my, my take on it. Now, from a personal standpoint, and that's difficult, uh, but from a personal standpoint, I really want to spend as much time as I can on the ground, seeing things and meeting the, uh, meeting the team. And it's sometimes pretty demanding, but it's the richness of it and the energy it drives is, is really worth it. You know, I'm sure, like everyone else, you've read the statistic about the number of digital transformation projects that fail. A huge percentage of current digital transformation projects has have been failing for many years. What's your take on that? Why do you think that is? Look, I I think there are two two traps um, in digital transformation that we need to be uh, to be aware and be aware of. Uh, one is you don't do a digital transformation for the sake of a digital transformation. Right. You do digital transformation because you believe that the digital tool is going to provide you a solution which is going to be delivering benefits. Now, you know, sometimes 
you know, people went into something not being sure about the benefits, but just because it was cool and good to have some kind of uh, lighthouse and testing. I'm absolutely not a, a fan of that. To me, a solution, be it digital or else, has to be meeting a need and has to deliver a benefit. And the second point is, at the end of the digital solution is just a tool. But what's going to make the difference is whether that, well, of course, the tool's got to be adequate, but assuming the tool is adequate, what's going to make the difference is the adoption. So if you have a fantastic digital solution, but people are not skilled or not willing or not engaged to use it, it's not going to go very far. And, and a classic example of that is, uh, which, by the way, is one thing we're doing at Refit, right? End-to-end -end planning solutions, right? You have some fancy tools now using machine learning and artificial intelligence and all sorts of insights to help you plan better and react better in a very volatile world. Fantastic. But of course, if you people keep planning on Excel spreadsheets, downloading from the system, downloading in the system, it defeats all the purpose. So you cannot look at digital transformation just from a systems and tools and tech standpoint. You have to look at it from an engagement standpoint, a skill standpoint, and an option standpoint, and a complete change management. And that is quite often overlooked. I love the way that you describe it as crux, because that is the absolute correct thing. It seems as though a lot of people are getting sucked into the hype of the shiny new object, as I like to call it. Oh, my competitors got AI and machine learning. Oh, my competitors got some lighthouse or, or you know, my neighbor down the street said that this is the next technology without looking to see whether it solves the problem. So the fact that you described it as a trap is brilliant because that's exactly what's happened. They're being trapped into that. I'm gonna add a third one, if you don't mind to that. I think that there's a communication issue. Maybe that goes into your second the silos issue that you've got companies in say procurement or sourcing um, fixated on finding the cheapest product. You've got the transportation and making sure they do the cheapest uh, solution. So the, the breaking down the silos and making sure that the company is all headed into the same direction. So if you've got sustainability goals or diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, ESG goals, et cetera, that the right hand knows what the left hand is doing, right? I find that a lot of times there's a lot of that in companies, that departments are sort of run under different metrics and different uh, objectives and goals. And sometimes that's in direct conflict to uh, the rest of the business. Have you found that in other companies? No, look, I, I would agree. And that to me is, is part of this whole change management um, you know, focus, which, which is sometimes lacking. I would agree with that. So pandemic, we've talked about that crazy times, uh, you've demonstrated your adaptability and agility, probably wouldn't recommend to others to uh, change jobs in a uh, crisis mode. What does the next few years look like, do you think? You know, what what is the pandemic done for supply chain? Has it elevated the position of supply chain in the world? And what do we do with that? That's a very wide open question. So look, um, yes, it's elevated. To, to, to answer the last part of the question, yes, it's elevated supply chain. Uh, I think people realize that supply chain is much more than just uh, moving goods and uh, you know the classic uh, plant source make delivery definition of it. Uh, that supply uh, supply chain has a key role in resiliency and in, uh, in ensuring business continuity, which wasn't necessarily seen as a big issue before pandemic. Now it's realized as, a, as you know an absolute. Uh, 
must um, in businesses. Uh, supply chain is where usually most people lie and where most of the energy consumption is. So from an ESG standpoint, whether you look at biodiversity, responsible sourcing, human rights, or climate change, supply chain has a key role to play. Um, so yes, I, I think it's elevated the role of supply. It's realized that uh, that supply has, uh, you know, an, an, an essential seat at at the table, but it's also made the the life of supply much more difficult. Right? We're 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 talking about VUCA words for quite some time, but uh, you know, the level of volatility and disruptions we've experienced over the last uh, two to three years is just unprecedented. At least unprecedented for decades. Um, whether you look at COVID, the war in Ukraine, and all its consequences on uh, on, on supply disruptions, uh, what's happened on transportation, what's happened on energy, uh, what's happening with a big resignation. Um, that is really the inflation, that, that is really unprecedented. And recipes of the past don't work uh, anymore, at least to, to a lot of extent. Uh, so supply not only has to invent, well, to, 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 uh, to adapt to this new world, but it has to reinvent itself. Because again, a lot of what was working in the past is not working anymore. So, Short answer is yes, on the positive, it's elevated. Uh, on the less positive, it's, it's, it's a lot of hard work uh, because there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of fixing, a lot of adjustments, a lot of reinventing that need to take place at the fast pace. Sammy, you should read the newsletter that I put out um, yesterday about I think it's time we redefine the term supply chain. Uh, I think it's time that we look at this ecosystem. Uh, aspect the fact that there's the crisis or the cocktail of crisis is not going away. We're going to have issues regards with regards to supply side, demand side. We're going to have issues with regards to environmental, climate impact, geopolitical, economic. I mean, it, it is really like you say, unprecedented times. So the methodologies that were learned in the '80s or maybe even before aren't necessarily going to apply to today's world. So. I know that you've spoken in the past about the idea of supply chain versus supply ecosystem. So, um, you know, can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, look, I, I love it. Uh, and, and it's great that you're, uh, you're, you're building on this. I, I love and I embrace totally this concept of supply ecosystem. By the way, I, we, we don't refer, Richard, we don't refer to supply chain anymore, we refer to supply because I, I don't think the chain is, is valid anymore. To me, the chain is, it's kind of referring to words where things were quite linear and sequential and, and somehow predictable, which is absolutely not the case anymore. And it also refers to words where mostly things were in control internally, where you had most of your decisions and controls and stakeholders. Of course, with this concept of extended supply chain, hooking up upstream with the suppliers and downstream with the customers. But that, that again, is something of the past. Um, you know, if, if we're looking at how supply operates in today's world, it's anything but linear and sequential. Uh, so, you know, all the links are kind of scattered everywhere and the connections between the links keep changing all the time, which to me is much more closer to this concept of ecosystem. And also, if we look at what supply is doing, and uh, as we discussed just before, it's much more than just uh, plan, make, source, deliver. It has a key role to play on ESG, it has a key role to play on digital transformation, it has a lot of stakeholders to liaise with internally, externally. Um, you know, when you, go, when you go upstream, you don't go to tier one suppliers anymore, you have to go much deeper. Whether you look at resiliency or, uh, or responsible sourcing, when you look at customers, you don't look just at your initial customers. You have to look at your customers, your consumers, the stakeholders around them, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's much wider than the classical supply chain in-house kind of uh, version of it. And, and again, I think that the, the image of the ecosystem is much more close to what it is than, uh, than, uh, than the concept of chain. 
after this podcast, I'm going to send you a link to my newsletter. I'm going to send it to you on LinkedIn because I, I wrote just about exactly about this yesterday. And I think that it's just a, an old fashioned term. This, this idea of a linear chain just does not apply to the world we live in today. Um, so I'm glad, I, I'm glad that we're both on the same page here. And I think that there's probably, we could have a whole podcast talking about that, but we're you know close to running out of time. So I want to ask you a couple other questions. Well, first of all, I want to say a huge congratulations to you because I understand that you were what voted number one uh, first in the top 28 supply chain executives Europe in 2022. So considering that it, you had just landed back into Reckitt, that you had a lot on your plate, I, first of all, congratulations that, to that. Um, and then secondly, I want to talk about diversity, because I know that it's something that you're passionate about as well. Uh, you're a father to a daughter. And uh, I know that when, uh, you know, my dad was one of the biggest influences in my life and showed me that essentially I could do any job so long as I applied myself. How important is it to you as a father to a daughter, as a leader in your business to have representation and diversity within your organization? It's super important. It's paramount. Um, and, and to me, diversity is not just about uh, gender diversity. Of course, it's about gender diversity. And by the way, we still have, very honestly, we still have a lot of work to be done on that uh, in, in, in supply in general and in supply records um, specifically. But clearly, we need, to, we need to promote gender diversity, we need to promote equality, but, but it's, to me, the, the concept of diversity goes beyond this, right? It's, it's diversity of background, it's diversity of thoughts, it's, uh, it's, it's diversity of uh, orientation, you name it. it it's really about creating an environment where anyone can feel very comfortable being his or herself. Um, and, and look, I think there's still, uh, there's still a long way to go. It is way better than what it used to be. I think we, we're, not, we're not saying this enough, right? If I, if I remember, again, I'm, I'm coming from a multi-cultural multi background, and uh, if I'm looking back at my youth and I'm looking at how we are today, I think a lot of progress has been made in diversity and inclusion. But certainly not enough. So we still have a long way to go. I would agree with you on that. I think, I think with the advent of technology and with complexity in our world that is just not going to go away, we are going to need critical thinkers in our businesses, in supply chain. And that critical thinking doesn't necessarily have to come from the traditional backgrounds, be it gender, be it uh, race, be it age, be it... Um, background in general. I mean, I, you know, I don't have a supply chain degree or engineering degree. It's having people that are different that can maybe help us navigate this different world that we're in. Before I do a final, final let you go, there's a last minute segment area or an, a last minute element to our segment that uh, I always ask my guests or I'm starting to ask my guests. And that is, uh, what book do you think that you would say has had the biggest impact on your life, whether it's from a personal or a professional standpoint, and uh, why? And again, it's a very difficult question for me because I to, to single out a book is is a bit difficult. A, I'm reading more for leisure, so you know I'm, 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 I'm I tend to read more novels and thrillers and stuff like this. Um, I've read quite a few books on history because I like history. I think, you know, looking at how things have gone in the past is, is, is helping you, forging your view on, uh, on, the, on the current environment. So uh, that, that's one I would single out. I'm not a fan of management books, but there are two that really had an impact on me. Uh, one is Good to Great from Jim Collins. That is really a book that I would recommend. At least it had an impact on me. And the other one is about founders, is, uh, is a book called The Founder's Mentality from Chris Zook. 
those two, yes, did, did, did influence the way I looked at things from a professional standpoint. I, I, I'm just like you. I have like a multitude of books that I, you know, it depends on my mood uh, is what I'm reading. So, Sammy, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for participating and for sharing your thoughts. And hopefully we'll see you again. Yeah, thank you very much, Maria. It's been a, it's been a great conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. So uh, thanks for giving me that opportunity. And yes, let's absolutely stay in touch. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I do hope you gained some valuable insight from this week's episode. To stay up to date with the latest developments, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn at Transform Talks. Also, if you don't already follow me on LinkedIn, please do so now. I'm always keen to connect with supply chain and business leaders from around the world. You can find me by searching for Maria P. Villablanca. And if you're lucky, I may let you know what the P in my name stands for. In the meantime, wishing you a great week ahead. And as always, for those of you listening, I'll catch you at the next one.